So this morning, I'm going to begin with this question. Do you like checklists? I heard somebody say, yes. Does anybody live by checklists? Yes. Somebody else said, no. That's because your wife is your checklist. I remember as a little boy, my dad would chart out for us on a big piece of paper, kind of the thicker cardstock paper. And my dad was a bit of an artist. He wouldn't claim to be, but I always thought he was. And he would draw out on the side and make tables, but one would be like my blocks all strewn about. Another one would be maybe my bed needing to be made. You know, you kind of get the idea. And I had to go through each day and I had to check the boxes that I did the things on the list. Early on as a kid, you know, hey, if I can check all these boxes, I can earn a lot of cool points with my parents. I mean, have you have you made your bed? Yep. Check. Have you cleaned up your toys? Yep. Yep. Check. And as you get older, you know, have you cut the grass? Check. Did you clean the bathrooms? Check. I mean, they, they had the long list of all the things on the checklist. Some of you may not call it a checklist because you're not a checker. You know what I'm saying? You have lists. But when you accomplish something on your list, it's not rewarding enough to go, check. You have to say, I got that one done. Yes. And so you have lists, some of you for home. You have lists for the grocery store. You have lists for work. And sometimes we even rate, if you will, not that we actually rate, but we do. We rate ourselves based on how many things on the list we were able to check off, to scribble out, to say, done. And sometimes a good day is reflected on the list, and sometimes, do you ever know anybody that has a list a lot longer than there are hours in the day? Maybe there's a Sunday and they say, you know what, we're gonna get a lot of things done today. And they share with you their list. And you say, we're gonna do how much today? Well, this, will, this project here will only take about an hour and a half. And then this part will only take a couple hours. And you're thinking, yeah, you can just double all these estimates. It's going to take longer, longer, longer. And then at the end of the day, instead of checking them all off, you only checked off like half of the first one. And you say, how was your day today? Oh, it wasn't a good day. How come? Oh, I can't even say it. Just look at the, look at the list. Oftentimes we live by lists. But how about when it comes to spiritual things? This morning I want to talk to you about a serious topic. It's not a lighter topic. It's this idea, is righteousness a checklist? There's a lot of places we could go. There's a lot of things we could talk about. I don't think we can probably fit them all in today. I probably won't check all my boxes, but that's okay. You know, for the Pharisees, they really were good at lists. They had many lists, and they were good at checking off their list. But Jesus had some word for, words for the Pharisees that somehow they were missing the point. And at one point in time, he says, you know, it's not bad that you have your lists. It's not bad that you tithe on your mint and, and your cumin and all of your spices. That's not necessarily bad. You've just neglected what? The weightier things of the law. And sometimes I think when it comes to righteousness, we view it as a list when perhaps maybe it's something else. But our burning question is, what is righteousness? I imagine if we went around the room, we'd have a dozen different answers to this question. Some would say, righteousness, doing our best and letting God do the rest. Is that righteousness? Some have some texts and quotes that support that. 
Another idea as what of, of what is righteousness is total sinlessness. And some are striving to be that way. A third one we could put up here is, and perhaps to most, it is some connection to obedience to God's law. And we could point to verses for that too. Here's one. It's in 1 John chapter 5, verse 17. All unrighteousness is sin. And so if unrighteousness is sin, then righteousness must be what? Obedience or the lack of sin. So we usually attach righteousness to obedience and we attach obedience to the law. And so if we want to be righteous, we ask ourselves all sorts of questions. Am I breaking the Sabbath if I do such and such? Is that lying? Is that stealing? Is that taking God's name in vain? And we have a long checklist of thou shalt nots with which we examine ourselves. And if we find something in our lives that seems to be a violation as Christians, we launch a campaign against that thing. And so we begin to pray and study and ask God to bless us. And finally, by his grace, suddenly that disappears and we can't see it in our life anymore. Praise the Lord. And then we say, I'm more righteous because one more sin is gone. Check it off the list. With the idea that if we live long enough, all those sins will be gone and we will be overcomers. Is that righteousness? I imagine there's many that can relate to that and have been trying that for years. But the question I'm asking this morning is, is that righteousness? How about this question? Is the absence of sins righteousness? I mean, if you can't find any sin in your life, are you righteous? Is righteousness not killing, not stealing, not lying, not committing adultery, not taking the Lord's name in vain, not worshiping idols? Many of us have thought that for a long time. If not doing those things is righteousness, however, then we should join one of these, a convent there in Greece. Wouldn't this be the logical conclusion? Join some monastery? I believe in this monastery, if not, it's one like it. There's only one person in the whole monastery left. And so I wouldn't be very tempted to lie. There's nobody to lie to. Wouldn't be very tempted to steal. There's nothing to steal. And in such a scenario, you could pretty much have the absence of sin in your life. And some have taken this very approach. And so my question again is, is that righteousness? If it is, what are we doing here? Let's go up onto the parkway some, somewhere. Let's, let's be on top of some pole or do whatever to where we can just be void of all sin and sinfulness in our life. And then we can be righteous. It might seem silly, but ironically, many of us have thought that is righteousness, haven't we? Getting rid of the sin. It's in Matthew chapter 22, and here Christ looked at obedience as righteousness. He discussed the law as he understood it, and he understood it very well, I believe, because he was, in fact, the giver of the law. And so this lawyer comes to Jesus, the giver of the law, probably also a scribe, and he says to Jesus, I'm reading now from Matthew 22, verse 36, we read, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And verse 37, Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Everything is there in those two. Supreme love for God and love your neighbor as yourself. 
And Jesus essentially said, this is the right concept of righteousness. Now, Jesus' law-keeping was not the omission of sin, but rather it was the doing of good. Most of us think the opposite. We think righteousness is elimination of sins in our lives. Like the empty house that we talked about. When the devil was cast out, the house is still empty. There's no righteousness there. When all the sin is gone, no matter how good that is, you're still empty. There's no good thing in it. It's just empty. It's clean, but righteousness is more than just eliminating sin in our lives. It's not a negative, not killing, not stealing. It's a positive love for God and love for our fellow man. It's also more than a profession. Jesus addressed that too. Do you remember this story? And we're not going to look this one up, but Matthew 21, 28 to 32 is where you can find it. But it's a story about a man that had two sons. And he asked the first one to go work in the field. And he says, not going to do it. But later, he does. And the second son says, I'll do it. But later, he doesn't. And what did Jesus say about these two sons? He said, the one who did was the one who was blessed. Matthew 7, 21 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Again, this idea that the doers are blessed. The empty house is there at zero. You have sin on the negative side. You have righteousness on the positive side. But it's not enough, we emphasize, to eliminate the wrongdoing. There must come into my life this loving, this right doing, or I'm not righteous. So it is not the discontinuance of acts of transgression. It isn't that at all, but rather it's doing the acts of love for God and for fellow Man, let me put it this way. Let's suppose I have an old car I wish to sell you. And of course, you're very interested because this is a beautiful car that I have. 1977 Ford Pinto Cruising Wagon. Does anybody want to admit to having this car? But let's suppose you're very interested in this beautiful car that I have and you're willing to give me top value for this car. But it's an old, older car. And the thought comes to my mind as the seller, if I just deceive you just a little bit in regards to the mileage, I could get some extra money in my pocket. In fact, maybe as much as $1,500 extra. That's not bad. In fact, I have some plans of what I could do with this $1,500 extra. And so the temptation is to lie to you. Why? So I can receive that $1,500 extra. So here's my question. Why should I not lie to you? Should I not lie because it's against my principles? Should I not lie because liars, well, they'll be lost and I don't want to be lost? Or should I not lie to you because I genuinely love and care and have concern for you? Which is it? Now, I know you can tell me which one it's supposed to be, but that's not the question I'm asking of you. When this situation poses itself in your life, which one is it for you? I imagine many in this situation say to ourselves something like this. Hmm, you know, if I just told him the speedometer was off, that's not too bad. But I don't want to be lost. I sure like to have that money. And so I find myself caught in between, stuck between these two desires, these two wishes, more money and desire to be saved. And so I choose between these two wants. More money wanting to be saved. More money wanting to be saved. And the wheels are just grinding in my mind. But as I weigh it out and as I go back and forth, in my brain. I get really excited about the $1,500, but then I feel so guilty I can't do it. And so finally I say, boy, I wish I could have both, but I can't. So I come around eventually to say, you know what? I really shouldn't do that. And so I don't lie to you. So I miss out on the $1,500. And perhaps I go away and I say, thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I didn't lie. I told the truth. And again, the question, are we righteous because we do right things? 
Because in my heart, I may have told the truth, but I'm still dreaming about what I could have done with that $1,500. You never do that, do you? So again, my question, is that righteousness? I didn't lie. I told the truth. Isn't telling the truth righteousness? No, I'm afraid it isn't. If we understand it correctly. But this is what we often do, isn't it? Let me read to you from Thoughts from the Man of Blessings, page 58. It says, the love of God is something more than a mere negation. It is a positive, an active principle, a living spring ever flowing to bless others. If the love of Christ dwells in us, we shall not only cherish no hatred toward our fellows, but we shall seek in every way to manifest love toward them. In other words, if I really love you, and if I have Christ in my heart, it's not just avoiding doing wrong to you and cheating you, but rather it's taking every opportunity to do right and to bless you, to show love to you, to do good things for you. And that's a different kind of righteousness than we usually think of, isn't it? Yet all the time we've been praying, Lord, Lord, keep me from doing the wrong things. And it could be we have been focusing all our attention on not doing and failing. When we'd be better served if we focus on the positive, on blessing others, and perhaps when we do that, the not doing will take care of itself. You see, the one is focused fully on me, the other is focused on the love of God and seeking to be a blessing to someone else. One is negative, the other is positive. Righteousness is very much different than most of us suppose. Isaiah 64, 6, we looked at this already, all our righteousness are like filthy rags. We'd like it better if it said some, but no, it's all. Our righteousness are like filthy rags. And I gave you more detail on how filthy and what kind of rags these were. For a woman on her menstrual cycle, for feces, I mean, these are all of our righteousness. Another quotation from Thoughts on the Mount of Blessings, page 50, because the law of the Lord is perfect and therefore changeless, it is impossible for sinful men in themselves to meet the standard of its requirement. In other words, the law is too holy for me to meet its requirements. I can't do it in and of myself. Skipping down to page 54, the law of God is as holy as he is holy, as perfect as he is perfect. It presents to men the righteousness of God. And then she says, it's impossible for man of himself to keep this law. For the nature of man is depraved and deformed and wholly unlike the character of God. It's natural for us to do the opposite of what the law requires, as much as we like to think differently. Paul talks about this. I want you to look this one up too. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, we're going to begin in verse 9. It says, what then? Are we better, we being the Jews, than they, the Gentiles? And he says, not at all. Are the Gentiles better than the Jews? Are the Jews better than the Gentiles? He says, nope. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, verse 10, there is how many righteous? None righteous. No, not one. Neither Jew nor Gentile is righteous. Now, this might discourage some of you trying to be righteous. If you're trying to be righteous of yourselves, then you won't like what I'm about to say. But if you've been failing and, have to, and are tempted to give up, you're going to like everything I have to say. Because if you read on in Romans chapter 3, it continues talking about our unrighteousness, our inability to keep God's law. But then you get to verse 20, and it's like a hinge point in the chapter. Everything changes. It's a unique transition that takes place. And in the first 20 verses, he's been talking about the non-righteousness that we have. And then it changes with that little word in verse 21, but. Verse 21, it says, but now, 
The righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So first it talks about the unrighteousness of man and how all of man's attempts to be righteous don't work. Then it says, but now something else has happened. The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. And the incredibly good news is that righteousness is for us. Let's read it. Again, we're going to continue verse 22 this time. But for now, the righteousness of God, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. That's a big deal. So Paul is talking about people that tried to be righteous, and he says none of them are. We all try to be, and sometimes we think we are, but we're not. And he says that this does not mean that all is lost in the pursuit of righteousness. He says there's a better kind of righteousness. It's the righteousness of God, which is unto all upon all who believe. And it comes by faith through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's saying. The message is Christ our righteousness, our righteousness, not we our righteousness. This same Bible writer, Paul, is towards the end of life. We get his thoughts. We could maybe say more of his final thoughts on this. And we read it in Philippians 3, verse, And being found in him, talking about Christ, not having my own righteousness, Paul says, which is from the law or my attempts to keep it, we could say, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Paul says a human being can't have that, but it's unto all who believe. At the end of his life, Paul says, I'm not, I'm not counting on my own righteousness. I only want the righteousness of God, which is found through Jesus by faith in him. That's what I want. That's what I'm resting in. That's what my hope is in. Not my righteousness, but the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God in Christ, interestingly, is righteousness in a human. Think about that. The righteousness of God in Christ is righteousness in a human. The righteousness of God is in divinity, but as Christ lived that godly life, righteousness was found in a human being who lived just like we live, by faith in the righteousness of God. And so that means that this righteousness can be for us. And it comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul is saying in Romans 3 that God is essentially asking why we strive to keep the law when all are sinners and unrighteous. God is standing there waiting to give you his righteousness in the person of Jesus. Would you trade one for the other? Why do you try and achieve your own when he offers you something much better? Do you know that Jesus himself did not claim that his righteousness was his own? John 14, 9 and 10. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen who? The Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? He's saying, if you see anything in me, it's actually not me, it's God. It's my heavenly Father. And it's to be the exact same with us. If you see anything good in me, it's not me, it's God. Or we could say, it's Jesus. Anything good I do is through him. And some of us start to panic. It sounds like he's just throwing out the law. Jesus didn't throw out the law. He upheld the law. He lived the law. And how did he do it? Through his heavenly Father. So we're not called to throw out the law. We're called to uphold the law. And how do we do it? Through our heavenly Father. Same way. Continuing on, it says, Believest that 
thou not that I am in the Father and the Father in me. The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. The words and the works of righteousness seen in Jesus were not his, but the righteousness of the Father in him. We see this over and over in the Gospels. John chapter 8, verse 28, then Jesus said, I do how much? Nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. John 5, verse 19, then Jesus answered and said to them, most, most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do how much? Nothing of himself. Somehow we think Jesus gets his pass, he's the son of God, he has all these special rights and privileges. Yes, he does, but he doesn't have any special rights and privileges that we do not have. He says, I can do nothing of myself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he, the father, does, the son also does in like manner. So his acts of righteousness were not his. His words that he spoke were not his. They were the righteousness of God the Father in Jesus, in a human, in a son of man. And that's what's offered to us. So I want to come back to our first question. What is righteousness? Because we've imagined it to be many things. So what is it? What is righteousness? What is the righteousness I may have and must have? What is the righteousness that gets us, that gets me into heaven? Can I show you another quote that boggles my mind? It says, the righteousness of God is absolute. This righteousness characterizes all his works, all his laws. The righteousness of God is absolute. Do you know what that word means? Absolute? Big. It's all encompassing. This is what Webster's Dictionary says. I picked out a few of them. One, free from imperfection and exalted in meaning. That's absolute. The righteousness of God is absolute. Another one, positive or certain. Another one, free from limit, restriction, or qualification. In other words, it's unlimited righteousness. There is no restriction on it. It's as high as high can be. It's absolute, determined in itself and not by anything outside itself. In other words, God's righteousness is not judged by someone or something else. It is determined in itself. It's not dependent or relative. It is ultimate, intrinsic as the absolute moral law. There is nothing more exalted or inherent in itself and in himself. And I could put one more as a noun. All reality considered as the final or total fact or existence. It's the total, it's the final fact of righteousness. There is nothing after it, and there is nothing more complete. Now, when you put these definitions together, the righteousness of God is all of that. The righteousness of God is absolute. His works are absolute. His law is absolute. There is nothing greater. There is nothing more perfect. In light of that, do you think you can keep that law? You have to be a pretty good Pharisee and be totally deceived to think you can keep that kind of law. Bad thing about Christians and Seventh-day Adventists is that we've thought we've exalted the law when really we've only depreciated it. What do I mean? We've deprived the world of a correct view of the law. We have not presented it correctly as the epitome of righteousness. And so people think they can keep it. Friends, any attempt of a depraved, degraded sinner to keep that law degrades the law. We've been degrading it for years. And it's ridiculous to think that sinners can keep that law. It's too perfect. It's too high. It's too high. You got it. You and I are only depreciating God and his marvelous law and his government by thinking that we can do it, that we can even touch it. It's like jumping to the moon. No, we must put the law back where it belongs as absolute. God's character is reflected in the law. Righteous 
and truth and pure and spiritual and unchangeable and eternal. And also the law is also spoken of as righteous and truth and pure and spiritual and unchangeable and eternal. And there's more. They're both good. They're both holy. They're both just. They're both perfect. They're both love. So if the law is God's character written down, then obedience to that law makes you like him, right? So yes, obedience to his law is likeness to him. Therefore, true obedience is God-like but let's take a look at this from another viewpoint what does that last one say in 1 John 4 8 God is love Romans 13 10 says love is the fulfillment of the law so if God is love and if the law is a transcript of his character the law has to be love and since the law is this transcript of his character love is perfect obedience to the law what are you trying to get at pastor if God's character is reflected in the law and if God is love then the law is love does it make sense could we say it this way if God is righteousness the epitome of righteousness and we could have said the epitome of love too and if God is love the epitome of love then can't we say that righteousness is love? I mean, do you agree with me that righteousness is love? This means that all those years, I've been trying to do something else that I called righteousness. And somehow I was totally deceived and I, I just missed the boat entirely. Righteousness, if it is love, is not trying to avoid hurting you. Righteousness is doing good things for you and blessing you in every way I can think of. That's righteousness because righteousness is love. God is love. God is righteousness. And so if God is righteousness and if God is love, then righteousness is love and obedience to that law is love. Is there a key word flowing through there? God is the epitome of love. His love is absolute, we could say. His righteousness is absolute. His love is absolute. His law is absolute. Like we think we can parse all these things out when really it's just trying to describe a God that is so big, we can't wrap our minds around it. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is love. Matthew 5 verse 6, it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they should shall be filled i love the little book thoughts of the amount of blessings and she quotes on this passage blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled she says this righteousness is holiness likeness to god and god is love then she says it righteousness is conformity to the law of god for all thy commandments are righteousness and love is the fulfilling of the law and then she just comes right out and says it righteousness is love and love is the light and the life of god the righteousness of god is embodied in christ and we receive righteousness by receiving him friends righteousness is love never forget that and if righteousness is holiness likeness to god and if god is love then righteousness is love and it's amazing that we have lived so long pursuing righteousness and so few of us have discovered that righteousness is love if there is love in my heart planted there by Jesus and there's love for you because he loves you tremendous and when there's love in my heart for you I find it very difficult to lie to you because I love you I find it very difficult to cheat you because I love you this is not an attempt to make the outside look perfect and flawless it is goodness coming out of the heart that embraces and loves humanity because God embraces and loves and that's what this world is longing for a genuine a genuine Christianity that will show genuine love the love of God too many of our churches are not offering love the love of Christ that will change lives we offer all kinds of things but we don't always offer that and there's a different understanding of righteousness than most of us have been following in our lives it is obedience to the law but it's far more than that it's a law of love so obedience is loving people steps to Christ page 60 powerful little book she says obedience
obedience is not mere outward compliance, but the service of love. What is obedience? It's the service of love. It's showing love. I thought if I could be a monk up on the mountain somewhere and I haven't had any interaction with anybody, but it sounds like I'm not being obedient because I haven't loved anybody today. I haven't blessed anybody today. The law of God is an expression of his very nature. It's an embodiment of the great principle of love and hence is the foundation of his government in heaven and earth. Love. If our hearts are renewed in the likeness of God, talking about this new birth, if the divine love is implanted in the soul, will not the law of God be carried out in the life? It will. You find me, two people that are in love. This is summertime, love is in the air. Two people that are in love that you have to pay them off to be loving to each other, to be kind to each other, to do nice things, to bless one another. They don't even have to think about it. It's what they wake up thinking, how can I, how can I make her smile today? That's very different than waking up thinking, I'm not going to do anything wrong today because I ain't moving. When the principle of love is implanted in the heart, when man is renewed after the image of him that created him, the new covenant promise is fulfilled. I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds will I write them. The Pharisees had the laws, but they didn't have the love. They were void of love. And if the law is written in the heart, will it not shape the life? Of course it will. Obedience, the service and allegiance of love is the true sign of discipleship. Obedience is the service and allegiance of love. That's a different kind of obedience for some. And don't you like that? If we have someone serving us and allegiant to us out of love, doesn't that make you feel good? And if it's good to receive this love, how much more blessed to give it, pass it on, to bless somebody else with it. And then it's a double blessing. Both you as the giver and they as the receiver. And if we go back to where we started, there is none righteous, no, not one. If you use the definition of that we've talked about, righteousness is love, we could perhaps read it this way, there is none who love. Paul says, we're not better than the Jews. They did not love, neither do we. You may say, wait a minute. Are you telling me that there's none that love? That seems pretty extreme. In the Bible, we find the fall of Adam and Eve after one sin, just one. And probably on the same day. But that one sin, Adam and Eve were estranged from each other. Their relationship changed. One sin in one day. Because when God came in the evening and asked, where are you? Adam said, Eve, that woman you gave me. She did a thing. It's Eve's fault. Slash God, it's your fault. Friends, love would not have done that. Selfishness did that. Self-preservation did that. Pride did that. Essentially, it was a lack of love that did that. Passing the blame, and Eve does the same thing. Who's left? Oh, the serpent deceived me. One sin, and strange. Look how little love remained after just one day from just one sin. And in only one generation from a perfect place with a perfect love, sin brought about the complete opposite of love. Cain killed his brother, Abel. In one generation, love on the one hand, on the one extreme, and hatred and murder on the other. He hated his brother and he killed him. Why? One sin brought about the degeneracy and love was gone. What is it like after 6,000 years of sin? We've been deceiving ourselves about this thing called love. If one sin brought about such estrangement and lack of love, think about 6,000 years, what does that accomplish? Our understanding of love is extremely feeble. Why? Because our concept of God, the author of love, is feeble. Friends, righteousness is love. Never forget that. And love is righteousness. And our understanding of righteousness is very meager. When the Bible says there is none righteous, it means there are none loving. We find this selfishness coming up all the time. But friends, love not only forgets itself, it does good things for other people. It plans good things for other people. That's genuine love that Christ demonstrated to us. And we have to admit, this is the most unusual type of love. And righteousness is love. Now, do you understand why we can't produce that kind of love? If one sin caused that separation and all that estrangement and caused the love to fall away from Adam's heart after one sin? And just think how we've been 
chasing love out of our lives for years. No, the reality is we cannot produce it. And yet this love is the fulfillment of God's law. It's perfect righteousness. And where does it come from? Friends, it only comes from Jesus, period, full stop. Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Do you love like Jesus loved? I don't. Who do you not like and feel justified in not liking them? All day long, Jesus cared for people. The people his family hated, he loved. The people his nation he hated, he loved. It didn't matter who they were, he loved them all. He loved those people, the Jews, called dogs, and he taught his disciples to love them also. Does that mean Jesus excused their sin? No. Did he overlook their sin? No. Did he celebrate their sin? No. Rather, he died for their sin and mine. And when he was hanging on Calvary's cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's a different kind of love than I have. I can't manufacture it. I can't plan for it. I can't conceive of it. I only can receive it from God. God so loved the world that he gave to us his only begotten son. His love for us was in Jesus. Righteousness is found in Christ. We receive righteousness by receiving him. Love is found in Jesus. And it's not just a change of the records. It's a change of the heart, a change of the life. I cannot do something that takes the place of it. I can only receive it and then watch it change and transform. Why? Because the love of Christ has come into my soul. What is righteousness? Righteousness is love. Sometimes we get hung up on this verse, Matthew 5. 548 but ye therefore be perfect even as your father which is in heaven is perfect sometimes this verse gets us in a panic but jesus could have said be ye righteous or be ye loving but we look at that word perfect and we say i give up i'll never be that good and people have created all new theologies because they are so discouraged but friends stop looking at yourself it doesn't say look at yourself it says look at the father look at jesus the author and finisher of our faith is he able to do that He did not say, look at yourself and see if you're as good as the Father. He didn't say that at all. He says, be perfect, be loving, be righteous as your Father in heaven is righteous. As you look to your Father in heaven, you too can be righteous through the power of Jesus Christ. Thoughts from the Mount of Blessings, page 77. The Jews had been wearily toiling to reach perfection by their own efforts, and they had failed. Christ had already told them that their righteousness could never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you ever feel that way? Weary in toiling, now he points out to them the character of the righteousness that all who enter heaven will possess. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, he describes its fruits, fruits of righteousness, and now in one sentence, he points out its source and its nature, be perfect as God is perfect. That's the source that's the nature that's how you do it the law is but a transcript of the character of God behold in your heavenly father a perfect manifestation of the principles which are the foundation of his government God is love like rays of light from the sun love and light and joy flow out from him to all his creatures it is his nature to give his very life is the outflow of unselfish love and he tells us to be perfect as he is in the same manner just like Jesus was we can do in the same manner by looking to the Father. We are to be the centers of light and blessing of our little circle, even as he is to the universe. We have nothing of ourselves, but the light of his love shines upon us, and we are to reflect its brightness. In his borrowed goodness, good, we may be perfect in our sphere, even as God is perfect in his. How can we be perfect? We have to borrow. We have to borrow. And he has a huge circle of influence. I may just have a small circle, but he's saying, take from me, abide in me, and be a blessing to your circle. Jesus said, be perfect as your father is perfect. If you are the children of God, you are partakers of his 
nature. And you cannot be like him. Every child lives by the life of the Father. We see this fleshed out in Scripture, 2 Corinthians 4.11. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus also may be manifest in our mortal flesh. That's how we do it. Romans 8 verse 4, the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is an amazing thing. Colossians 2, 9 and 10, for in Him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in Him. So what is righteousness? Righteousness is love. And our misunderstanding of righteousness led us into a weary struggle. We have pled with God to stop us from sinning and God has been saying all along that he wants to make us lovers we get the cart before the horse and the power that enables a person to love other people is Jesus and when you love them you won't hate them you won't lie to them you won't cheat them you won't kill them but you can't make yourself like that he transforms all who will receive him and he makes them right it is his love it's his righteousness that comes into me and changes me when as erring sinful beings we come to Christ and become partakers of his pardoning grace love springs up in the heart isn't that true first John 4 19 says we love because he first loved us in the heart renewed by divine grace, love is the principle of action. It modifies the character, it governs the impulses, controls the passions, subdues enmity, ennobles the affections. This love, cherished in the soul, sweetens the life and sheds refining influence on all around. Not until Christ comes into the heart as their genuine love for God and our fellow man. But when this love comes in, we are righteous. Don't you want to receive God's love? But some here might be saying, but how can he love me? I'm so unloving. I'm so unrighteous. I'm too bad. Well, he loved David, who was a murderer. He loved Peter, who cut off the ear of his servant, or of the servant. He wasn't aiming for the ear, by the way. He loved Moses, who's going to deliver Israel by killing an Egyptian. Does he love you? He sure does. And how much he wants that love to be on our heart so that the world will see God in all his love and all his righteousness and all his beauty. Don't you want to be like him? I do. I believe God can make the hardest soul a loving Christian, a lovable Christian. And so may God help us to be holy, to be righteous, to be loving, even as he is righteous.